Welcome to Brown Love, the show where we get real about all the things Latinx communities are talking about on your timeline. Brought to you by Netflix and Con Todo. I'm your host, Dasha Polanco. Each week, we'll be talking to Latinos in entertainment who are making space for our communities to see ourselves in all our complexity. To tell authentic stories about our communities, we don't just need to see ourselves on screen. We also need the opportunity to shape our narratives from behind the camera. But in Hollywood, diversity in the director's chair is nearly non-existent. According to a recent report from the Annenberg Inclusion Initiative, only 4% of the top 1,200 theatrical releases over the last 10 years were directed by Latinos. And only one director was a Latina woman out of more than 1,300 directors over a 10-year span. One. That's just crazy to me. The industry has a lot of work to do. Knowing just how many obstacles there are for Latina directors, I'm extremely proud and excited to be talking to this week's guest, Nadia Holgern. Nadia is an award-winning director and cinematographer of Boricua Descent, who was chosen by former First Lady Michelle Obama to direct the Netflix original documentary, Becoming. She's also the director of Oscar-contending short film, After Maria, which followed Puerto Rican families displaced by Hurricane Maria in 2018. From her New York home, Holgren talked to me about her journey to filmmaking, the light she's chosen to shine on her Latino community, and what it was like following one of the world's most famous women. Nadia, welcome. So nice to meet you, first of all. Thank you, Dasha. Such it's really honor. nice to meet you. Oh, my God. I'm so excited. Um, well, you know, every episode, I like to do a little icebreaker, starting off with quarantena cooking, first of all, because we're all in quarantine. Um, what are you eating these days at home? Are you cooking? What's What's your appetite like? What's going on? Sure. So at the beginning, I was doing really well. I was kind of sticking to a diet. I was on a strong exercise regimen. And then about a month in, I fell off a little bit. I got really into cooking and sort of bringing back old recipes that I haven't had in a long time and trying some new ones. So <laughs> I've been eating a lot more than usual, actually. Like what? Like what? Do you have a favorite Puerto Rican dish? Anything? Oh, like man. what's your favorite food? Me and my mom. So my mom lives a block away from me and we're both quarantining. So it's totally safe for us to hang out. So we made bacalao yesterday. Like Rico. Yes, which is our favorite family dish. And I made a patelon, which, yes, you know, not a lot of people know about this dish, but it's sort of called the Puerto Rican lasagna. It's layers of plátano maduro with, I don't eat meat, so I did it with beyond meat, ground meat, and that's not the most healthiest dish, but it's very delicious. Yeah, I've I been mean. doing Dominican-style pepper steak, also with... Ay, uh, que rico. I mean, these are all good foods. It's just like incorporating like our flavors. I mean, I don't know. People live long in the islands, you know, and they eat these things. I try to do it as healthy as possible, but it's funny. I was in I was in San Francisco when we sort of realized that the lockdown was going to happen. And so my mom was like, me and your sister are going to Costco. What do you want? And I was like, I don't know. I need a big adobo, five boxes of sasson, <laughs> and five bustelos. And then I came home and it was all on my table. And I was like, I don't know how long I'm going to last with this, but <laughs> this is so Listen. Puerto Rican. 
You need the bustelo, you need the adobo, you need the, the, the sopita, the, the sofrito. I mean, yeah. listen, it's, it's what, we, what we've grown up by and what makes us feel most home. Um, and that being said, so were you born in Puerto Rico? What do you identify with as a, as a Latinx member of our community? Oh, I'm born and raised in the Bronx. So I guess I see myself totally as like a New Yorkian, but I'm also half black. So it's this identity of being a black New Yorkian from the South Bronx that New York has like a very strong sort of excitement it's, it's, to it's, who we are. <laughs> I mean, listen, it's our roots, basically. Yeah. And growing up in the Bronx, can you talk about some of the images you associate with your childhood? Yeah, so actually, my childhood was... You know, when I look back, it was it was really incredible. We didn't have much. Um, I grew up in an area called Soundview, and it's one of the neighborhoods where hip hop was like first invented. So I was like, you know, a six year old kid in the 80s and jams in the park that were going from big speakers plugged into lampposts and flipping on mattresses like that was my childhood growing up. And then usually there'd be some type of shootout or something and then we all go home. So, <laughs> yeah, so that, that's how I grew up. But I think the, the family and community warmth was always present. And so that's where my roots are. And so you grew up, so are you, do you live in the Bronx now? I don't, I just left the Bronx two years ago. I was like, I'm getting old and I've never lived anywhere else in my life. I didn't go far. I'm between the East Village and Rockaway Beach. Right now, I'm okay. on Rockaway Beach. Yeah. Okay. Still so York. you're still New York. You're still, you're totally. still home. You're still home. <laughs> I always love when people like, you know, they stay home and they're like, look, I could travel, but I could come back and stay grounded. And I think groundness and family is huge in our community. Um, your grandmother, um, I hear, migrated from Puerto Rico uh, to the state. And you grew up with your grandmother? I did, yes. I did grow up with my grandmother. It's one of those also sort of very New Yorkian stories where I grew up with my grandmother, but I my mom never taught me to speak Spanish. So I'm not really sure how we ever communicated. It was it was really weird. Like she used to babysit me and I would be with her all the time, but my Spanish is not very developed. So um but I did grow up with my grandmother. Yeah. But you understand it. I wish I could say I understood it better. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very embarrassed by this, by the way. So just, you know. Why? 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 Why are you embarrassed? I mean, it's one of those things where I could blame my mother to a point that my Spanish isn't better, but I'm an adult and, you know, I could have taken it upon myself to learn, but it's one of those things that I found uh, difficult but I to pick up later in life. Yeah. Well, it is difficult to learn a language, especially when you don't use it every day, but also when the when your surroundings are predominantly English, right? Yeah. And growing up in New York, I think that's something that we could all relate to where either we do know the language or our language start fusion and become Spanglish and then we create our own terminology. But what are some of the memories that you remember about um, growing up with your grandmother and, and, and the introduction to Puerto Rico, right? Like, yeah, yeah. My grandmother, she lived in the projects on Brook Avenue and she, she had extra bedrooms and she had... I get my nails done there, by the way. <laughs> oh, wow. there go, ahead. Go. <laughs> go ahead. And the projects. Yes, I do. Go that's, ahead. that's real. <laughs> so she had a whole room dedicated to her santas and so she had like her altars and she did like santas yes. and all this stuff. And I was always like scared to go in that room because I didn't really understand it, but it's so funny. Um, so like that was it, you know, of course, music and cooking was a really big part for me. I think that's probably where we bonded the most. I've always been interested in cooking and she just 
made the most amazing food that to this day, I'm like, Ma, do my beans taste like hers? And I would, I would send her like, I would make beans and, and bring them to her and be like, are they, and she'd be like, they taste just like mine. I'm like, no, they don't. What's the secret? So you, you, can we say, is it safe to say that you had an ancestral connection with your grandma via food, via music, via a sense of storytelling, right? Absolutely. Um, yeah. So there was definitely a connection that not necessarily people have to understand. Sometimes we feel not enough. Sometimes we feel embarrassed because our language might not be the same. But there's so many other ways to communicate and to be able to feel that connection, that, that connection to our roots. And so to hear you speak, um, you could sense the pride of being Puerto Rican, Boricua, mm -hmm. embracing uh, your Taino roots, right? Yes. So I wanted to know, when did that love for filmmaking ignite? Yeah, so my story is that I started going to a local community arts center in the South Bronx called The Point. And The Point was this cultural space where people came together and they played music and they did art and I got interested in photography. And so there was a photography program there. And that's really when my understanding of documentary and storytelling came together. And so some of our assignments, and I was still a teenager, were to go out into our neighborhoods and take photos. Wow. And tell stories through photos. And, you know, I think for the very first time, I was able to see all of sort of the beauty, but the struggle that our communities were experiencing in a way that I never had the words to articulate, but I felt like the images that I saw were telling those stories. And so for me, that just touched me very deeply. I don't think I quite understood at, in the moment how much, but I, it really helped me understand the conditions that we lived in. Why did we live different from everyone else? You know, it's one of like the poorest communities in the country. And it really sort of started, it, it kind of sparked that interest in me to start looking deeper into, into understanding our, our own condition and through storytelling. And again, in ways that I, I never had the words to articulate. So had you already visited Puerto Rico at that point in your life? I had like, When was no. the first you hadn't? Mm -mm. What was the experience with that? Do you remember vividly? I do. And it's something that has influenced me ever since. So I think, you know, in New York City, Boricua pride is, and, you know, I think Boricua pride everywhere is like so strong. You know, we have the Puerto Rican Day Parade. It's like, it's how we dress. It's, it's you know, summertime's going to Orchard Beach. It's, it, there's just, it's so ingrained in who we are. And then I went to that, when I go to the island for the first time, I don't speak the language. I don't know any family members that are there. I felt like a tourist, right? So it's like you grow up with this whole identity that is so deep inside of you. And then to go to this place and feel like a stranger or an outsider, it was actually quite devastating to me. And it was something that changed me. And I kind of set out to be very interested in the stories of identity in America and especially Puerto Rican identity and what that actually means. You know, what does it mean to be Boricua from the Bronx versus what does it mean to be Boricua from the island? Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting, but I think all Latinos can relate to that in the sense that when they grow up here and they go back home um, to, to their country, to their island, um, they have this sense of not belonging. Like we fight to belong here and we're fighting to like, 
be acknowledged here in the States. But when we go back, it's like that's another battle we have to face. So you can definitely say that we all um, experience that. And I wanted to ask you, when was it that you decided as far as like the nonfiction doc directing? What was that that door opening? What was that opportunity that helped you get there? Yeah, so the, which I consider the day of like almost hitting the lotto for life was I had made a short film that it was not a very good film first, I have to say, but I showed it in a local community. It was actually called the South Bronx Film Festival. This is how homegrown local community this thing was. I've heard of it. I've heard of it. So I show my film there and a woman comes up to me after and she's like, I loved your movie, you know, white woman. And I was like, oh, that's so nice of you. Thank you so much. And I I was like really down on myself at the time. I was like, I want to be a filmmaker, but I have no idea. I don't know anyone. How will this ever happen to me? So I was kind of like, yeah, thanks. You know, walk away. Someone comes back and they're like, do you know who that is? And I was like, no. And they're like, that's Michael Moore's producer. And I was like, oh, really? And they're like, you need to talk to her. And so they bring her back over and they're like, okay, start again. And I chatted with her and we exchanged contact info. And I think what she saw was the effort that I was trying to make. She's like, I really love your film. I love what you're trying to do. She's like, if there's ever a chance that I can give you an opportunity, I will. Right. And I was like, that's very kind of you to say, you know, I never thought anything of it. And a few months later, I get a call and she's like, working with Michael on a new film. It's called Fahrenheit 9-11. And I can hire you as a production assistant. And she said, I promise, because at the time I wanted to be a cinematographer. And so she's like, I promise if there's ever a chance for you to shoot, I'll make sure you get that chance. And I was like, oh, my God. And so I get this job. So she's like, come to work like Monday. I show up. I know nothing about being on set. I've never worked in film. I was a terrible PA. I didn't know how to make copies. (laughs) I didn't never worked in an office. I was a bouncer in nightclubs, right? That was my background. I bounced in nightclubs in New York. What club? Just in case. What club? What club? Because, you know. I, I bounced at vinyl, <laughs> discotheque, crowbar. <laughs> I mean, all the big ones that everyone went to in, like, you know, the early 2000s. Um, so I was totally from another, another world. And, you know, I look back now and I laugh and I'm like, I probably would have fired me. But she didn't. And she... She was very firm and was just like, this is how you do this stuff. And they didn't give up on me. And while I was working on that film, I ended up assisting one of the most well-known women cinematographers and directors named Kirsten Johnson. And mm-hmm. so I just charged her batteries, got her, got her water, I carried her bags. That's where I started. And then when the film, you know, when the film wrapped, she ended up mentoring me uh, still to this day. And then I ended up filming a scene in Fahrenheit 9-11, which became a very famous scene in the film. And it was just by chance. We were trying to film the scene where Michael's in the ice cream truck and he's driving on Capitol Hill reading the Patriot Act. And I had a little camera and the police wouldn't let us stop the car to film. So they opened the door and I was the kid and they were like, go chase that truck and shoot it. You know, so there's this whole scene with Michael. So I ended up getting a camera credit in Fahrenheit 9-11 and that was the biggest documentary of the time and my name sort of just started swirling around. I mean (laughs) this is what I want people to hear that that it starts just with that one opportunity and I think that sometimes we resist and we kind of like take things for granted and we don't um, value ourselves enough to realize that as much as we criticize our work out there 
we are valuable enough for somebody to to notice and give us that one opportunity. And, and see then- the potential, right? So even if we're not fully formed yet, it's just the potential and the commitment of making something that's so important. Even the first thing you make doesn't have to be perfect and it doesn't have to necessarily be the most polished, you know, like up there with these big budget films. But I think it's just the, it's the exercise and the practice of, of doing that. Just opening the door, holding the door open for somebody and telling them, look, come in, get comfortable. And then we could plan after. So, I mean, I love it. I love to hear how it starts. And I wanted to speak about your professional experience in this world, because let me tell you something. I watched your documentaries and I'm an empath. So I cry over everything. I'm like, what is going on? I'm like everything. I absorb everything. And the way that you tell the story, your camera lens, like, Last year, you shot the documentary after Maria, Mm -hmm. which follows the lives of three Puerto Rican women who bond in a FEMA hotel uh, following Hurricane Maria. Wow. Mm. So full of emotion, so full of, like, it just, there's so much to tell and so much layers to this, how you captured that. And I wanted to, was this a documentary that was a game changer for you professionally? Like, Absolutely. walk us through some yeah. of the emotions that you felt. Because for me, I don't know how I would be able to do it. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, being behind there, be like, we got to take a break. I need some, uh, give me some tips, something. Yeah. Yeah. Like, Picking up from the last story I told you. So I end up, it sort of started my trajectory as working towards being a cinematographer. And, you know, eventually that's what I became. And I started shooting documentaries. And I've been working as a DP now for, like, over 15 years. And so I have been traveled all over the world, have been in all types of scenarios and situations that are everything from, you know, magnificent and exhilarating to heartbreaking and just unimaginable, see unimaginable circumstances for people. So that being said, I have learned how to cry and shoot at the same time. So there were so many times being in in those hotel rooms and, you know, some of the, the things that we were experiencing, you know, I would very quietly be moved to emotion, but just just keep doing what I was doing. And then also knowing that if that's the experience that I was having, hoping that audiences would also be connecting to these moments um, when they saw it on film. How did that come about, that idea of, of filming this? I was in LA and I was, I was like trying to figure out what I was going to do, like what, what was the next thing that I was going to do. I started directing a bit and trying to do something new from being a cinematographer. And I kept reading all the coverage that was coming out of New York City about families that were had to leave the island because of circumstances after the hurricane. And, you know, they were saying their families were staying in female hotels and just sort of what was happening. And going back to one of the first questions you asked me, the light bulb went on and I was like, this is my opportunity to not only highlight what's happening to families, but to tell a story of Puerto Rican identity. And what does it mean to leave your home, which nobody wants to do. It is one of the hardest decisions to make and families left because they were forced, because they were gonna die. To leave your home, come to a strange place. That place is your country, but you are not treated like the place is your country, which is all all what happened to many Puerto Rican families who came to America. Many people did not speak English and the level of treatment that they were given was just unimaginable. And so for me, I also wanted to explore what does it mean to, you know, 
be an American citizen, to come from Puerto Rico to the mainland and be treated this way? And, and what does it mean to sort of now you're in a new place where there's lots of Puerto Rican culture around you, but that culture is also very different from the culture that you know. Nilda, the little girl in our film, she grew up in the mountains of Puerto Rico. The Bronx is a completely different world for her. Yeah, the only mountain up in the Bronx is what, Mount Eden? <laughs> Mount Eden like, exactly. that stop on the train, all right? I don't know. They, yeah, so I get it. She, exactly. It, 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 right? That's what they, the, exactly. Oh. Exactly. And so, so just really trying to show that contrast of what that experience is like was really important for me. It's definitely a culture shock, but your contribution by doing this film was necessary. And for them to be brave enough, to be vulnerable enough, to document this in, in front of a camera, I must say, is something that you have to be very proud of. I'm very proud of you for that. And, and proud of them. Yeah, me um, too. Have, I mean, and have, just, just speaking, sorry to cut you, but just speaking to how proud you are of them, you know, they took real agency in agreeing to do this. You know, I explained to them what it would take. It would mean, it would mean me being in these very small spaces with them. But they said, if you telling our story helps this not happen to even one other person, we are willing to participate. So they were absolute collaborators in understanding that and the hope that with storytelling, this could prevent this horrible situation from happening to someone else. And that was so powerful. So did they stay? Did they go back to Puerto Rico? Like, do you stay in contact with them? Yeah, so I do stay in contact with them. All the families are still here. In they were all placed into permanent housing eventually in the Bronx, but only because... New York City has a program where parents with young children are given permanent housing through the shelter system, not because of the federal government. So the federal government completely dropped the ball and the New York City. And that's only that's only a family of. And I also have to say that it was it took two years before all the families were placed. They were living in shelters for two years before they were placed in permanent housing. So and that's only that's only a family of three. So imagine the multitude of families that that felt hopeless, that felt abandoned um, without being at fault, right? Without being at fault. And and even if you are, I don't think, I think it's inhumane to, you know, cause trauma to, to especially to kids that way. I know that was, that was really the most heartbreaking part of it, of it all, you know, and like folks lived on farms, you know, one of the families, Shayla's family, they lived on farms, they had farm animals, they, they didn't want to come here, they didn't want to, they didn't want to come to live in the Bronx, and I don't blame them, you know, it's just such a different life, but. But that being said, I mean, listen, so necessary, and here you are again this year, you have directed the Michelle Obama new documentary, becoming based on her memoir um and you document dozens of cities that she visited on her book tour wow i mean you just keep on rising it's still like almost a dream to me how tell me how did your name come up for this project how did this happen i mean lord i i went to the the last dance at the white house when michelle obama before Girl, and I couldn't even like go near them. I saw them. I was in in the crowd and I was like, oh my God, I want to hug you guys both. And I was jamming in the White House and I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm in the White House, bitch. I'm up in this bitch. Yeah. You know, but seeing that from the moment I started watching, I was like on it, crying, 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 crying. And I was just like, oh my God, you 
are amazing. I can't tell you enough. Please tell me, tell me, tell me. Yeah, it's crazy. I was sitting at my kitchen table, just like I am now, and I get a phone call. Priya Swami Nathan, who is one of the heads of Higher Ground, uh, the Obama's production company, she's like, hey, she had found my name uh, because I had done a very modest digital series with one of her closest friends. So she's like, Mrs. Obama is getting ready to go on her book tour, and we're floating the idea of it being documented. And we don't know what it'll be yet. We don't know if it'll be a film. It could just be footage that lives in Mrs. Obama's archive. And she's like, would you be interested? And I was like, definitely. Even if it doesn't become a film, just the experience of being with Mrs. Obama was mind blowing to me. So, uh, but of course there were a few layers to get through. So we have a few phone calls. And then one day I get an email that says, you have an appointment at the office of Michelle and Barack Obama. And I was like, just jaw drop. And I was like, oh my God, what do I do? And I was like, prepare, prepare. How do you prepare? What do you do? How do you prepare for this? Right? What did you wear? What did you wear? What, like, what did you smell like? Yeah, what? Exactly. What? Oh my God. So um, I was like, okay. I went and I watched every speech of hers that I could find on YouTube. I read every magazine article that she had been featured in. I went back and read both of the president's books. I had three weeks and I listened to every podcast that I could hear her voice. I was just like, I, I was like... I'm never going to get this job, but I'm sure as hell going to be as prepared as I could possibly be. I actually... Do you hear that, people? Do you hear that? Prepare. Prepare. Go in there prepared. Research. It's important. So important. So important. Know who you're talking to. And so the day that I, you know, my appointment day comes up, I take the train to D.C., and, you know, um, I arrive and they're like, okay, Mrs. Obama is ready to see you. You have 30 minutes. And if she connects with you, you have the job. I was like, no pressure. Okay. And. <laughs> connects? What does that even mean? I'm already connected. <laughs> I, I remember like walking in her office and it's like the softly, beautifully lit room with artwork on the wall. It felt like a dream. I was like, am I dreaming? Is this really happening? This is crazy. So Mrs. Obama's sitting in the far corner. She stands up and she's very tall and I'm not tall. And she just like towers over me. And I extend my hand to give her a handshake. And in my nervousness, like I weird, I give her like the most weird, awkward handshake and like our fingers like, like go like Bronx that. And I was like, oh man, I'm messing this up already. And she's just like, I'm a hugger. And I was like, me too. And she gives me this like the biggest hug and totally calms Ay, Dios me down. Mio. I know. I would die. Adios <laughs> mio. What is her sign? I'm just wondering because I was dying to find out when's her sign. What's her uh, sign? January 17th. So January? Yeah. January. Oh, she's 17th. a Capricorn. Capricorn. Okay, interesting. Um, wow. and so then we sit down and and we just start talking. And, you know, we talked about our neighborhoods, where we grew up. You know, she's from the south side of Chicago. I'm from the South Bronx. So we totally had that where, you know, our, our neighborhood shaped us. It's who we are. We talked about our moms. You know, she's really tight with her mom. I'm tight with my mom. So it was just like we just connected on a very human level. And then she was like, what I did you have for the film? And I told her and she was like, let's do this. I would die. I would. So, I was so, like, oh, my God. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh my god i'm so excited for you and it already happened um i'm like ah so how i wanted to for those who only dream of of working with Ms. obama describe the collaborative process with her to shape the film sure so you know i told her my ideas and 
she, you know, and, and, and the idea other than telling her story was I was very interested in telling a story about storytelling. So what does it mean to share your story and sort of go out in the world and have people receive it? And also this exchange that happens. I think at the same time that I met her, I had been sort of reflecting on my own life and thinking about who am I and how do I know the things that I know? And I was like, well, I've been listening to people tell their stories for like 17 years now. It's all I've ever done. And so much of my understanding of the world has come from listening to people tell their stories. And I thought that that was really interesting. And I wanted to try and weave that element into the film. And so we just shot and we we just shot and shot and, and we kind of kept going. We were, we decided May 6th was always going to be our release date. And that's a very fast shoot edit schedule. So when did you start it? You started last year? Yeah, we started at the end of 2018. She went out on tour around okay. like November 2018. Yeah, so it's been about a year and a half now since uh, we first started filming. Wow. And so, that's so a quick turnaround. Very, with posts and everything, like. It's very fast. For those that don't know, it takes a while, guys. For those that don't know, it does take a while. So that's really fast. But yeah, so you asked about the the collaborative process. So she she just let me do my thing. We made a film and I eventually showed her that film. And she she liked my idea. She liked what I was doing. And if anything, she actually helped deepen some of my understanding of her own story. You know, no one knows the story better than her. So she'll, she'll be like, that thing, that story you're telling... This thing also happened on that day. You should look into that. And this also happened. And I'm like, awesome. And so she was really, she really contributed in in wonderful ways and help, helping me do those things. Are there any memories that didn't make the cut? Anything embedded in your in, in you that that resonated but just didn't make the cut for the doc? You know, I would just say that Mrs. Obama and I, we I think we developed a really kind of intimate and fun friendship. She's so interested in other people and it would be late at night, the camera would be off and we would just stay up talking and having these like really amazing conversations. And she was so focused and locked in the way you see her in the film. And it's like, she was so interested in my life. And I think just some of those personal moments with her, I like, I'll just never forget. I think that that's so extraordinary. This, isn't it amazing when you meet these iconic individuals that, they just, they're so present and they, I, I find that with all respect to you, it, it also uplifts you in a way that you're like, yo, I'm ready for the next thing. What's up? Bring, come on. I'm ready. Come on. I was just with Michelle. Don't play with me. I'm backed up, honey. Okay. What's <laughs> you know, next? that is, that is correct. I mean, even while making the film, you know, there's so many insecurities that come up. I'm like, this is my first feature film. I've, I'm a very experienced member of a crew. You know, I've, I've shot many, many documentaries, but I mean, no one's made a Michelle Obama film before, you know? And so there were times when I was like, this is so hard. Can I even do this? You know? And then I would be in the arena and I'd be hearing her tell her story and I'd be like, yes, I can do this. Mrs. Obama did this. I can do this. I just really drew from the strength that she has and she's so giving of it. And yeah, and so after that, you're like, okay, you know, and you see it even happen in the film when she meets young women. She trans, she she has this transfer of power and this transfer of confidence that she wants to give you. She wants you to have it, and it transcends through even through that through the screen. It transcends. I mean, in in the doc when she says, when somebody walks up to me, don't look around, don't look beyond them. 
do look them in the eye and take in the story. When I heard that, I was like, holy, I'm, I'm not going crazy because I've always had an issue with people looking up or not paying attention or, you know, in this industry, that's one of the problems that I still continue to have is going to these networking things. And I'm like, like, I really oh, don't want to. Yeah. That? And I'm like, yeah, what you do? You know, I've been on, I've been on a carpet and people are like, Hey, Dasha, so what are you? And they're like looking at the next person coming down. And I'm like, you know, it's like, you take those, you take seconds and you take minutes to acknowledge somebody and to just make them feel present. And you don't realize the impact that that has. And so when that happened, in, when she said that, I just felt like this. I was like, yo, this is this woman is like, this is who I am. You know what I mean? So do you feel similarly when you're capturing your interview subjects or when the experience of like looking at the first lady in the eye, like I, you capture that so many times that you could you felt it like. So as I started to spend time with Mrs. Obama, what you just said mm-hmm. is what I felt too. I was just like, this is, this is a unique quality. It's a, a, a tremendously unique quality that I need to figure out how an audience is going to tap into. Like, I want them to feel what I'm feeling right now. I want them to see what I'm seeing. And so for me, again, being a cinematographer, I was like, I have to get close. Like, I have to be very close to her. And at the beginning, that was like, difficult because there's secret service around her all the time and there's lots of stuff happening so it's not always easy to like just be physically close to her mm-hmm. and i was scared too like i'm like the new kid around like everyone else has been around for 12 years and i'm just because you like, experienced that yeah because you you've had that that look me in the eye connection with mrs michelle obama yes so tell me the connection from your experience to that yeah so i was right? just like i have to i can't be afraid to i can't be afraid to do what I need to do to make this film feel the way I know it needs to feel. And so I had to overcome that, that fear. You gotta, you know, you gotta overcome that shit quick. It's like scared. Okay. Get over it. Move on. Just do what you gotta do. And you know, Mrs. Obama's also, she's like, she, she's one of the bravest people. I mean, imagine the line that she put herself in and perform the way that she did. You know, she has an intense focus and, has gone through so much. So I'm like, if Mrs. Obama could do it, I could do it. You don't know how many times I told myself that. Probably even still this week when it's like, you got to do all this press and it's scary and it's all this stuff. And I'm like, if Mrs. Obama can do it, I can do it. It's just this mantra that I now will probably have with me forever. And you're doing it so well, honey. Thank you. (laughs) In the doc, during a visit to her alma mater, the Whitney M. Young Magnus School in Chicago, Miss Obama meets Elizabeth Cervantes a Latina who we find out is expected to be one of the first people in her family to graduate high school, all while she's been working to support her father and three brothers. You later returned to Whitney Young last year to film her last day of school and graduation. And so can you talk about the decision to highlight Elizabeth in the film? Yeah, so she had this really special connection with Elizabeth that, you know, I felt it in the moment, but then when we went back and looked at the footage, it was overwhelmingly evident and Elizabeth's story is she's like I don't even know why I'm here why I was chosen to do this I'm not special I don't I may not have the best grades or be involved in all the school activities and Miss Obama's like but she's like you know because I'm busy working after school to help my family Miss Obama's like that is what is special about you and she just gave Elizabeth she did that transfer of power that she does 
And, you know, she really wanted, you know, even if she was had the opportunity for one minute to tell Elizabeth how special she is. So that, you know, the idea that Elizabeth would have that confidence walking out of that room. Mrs. Obama does that and she does it intentionally. She wants you to feel that way. And when we saw that, you know, we were like, Elizabeth's cool. Like, let's, let's, you know, let's call her and let's talk to her. And when I, when we spoke to her, she was just, she was so wonderful. She's an awesome young person. And we were like, we're, we're going to come, we're going to come to school. We're going to, you know, we're going to come film with you some more. And it turned out that when we went, it was her last day of high school, which was such an emotional experience for us. We're like, remember the last day of high school, you know, and it was just, it was really fun doing that actually. Wow. And, and you know, look, there's, there's so many moments in the doc where I found myself tearing up, seeing the Obamas become the first black family to hold space in the white house and the first family ever for, for us to feel related to. And, um, the men, the mental and emotional growth of Miss Obama, seeing different people around the country portrayed as good, no matter where they came from. And also, I wanted to ask you how invested or not do you get emotionally during these pivotal moments while you're doing this, while you're shooting this? I mean. Yeah, I mean, I I get, I do get emotional when I'm filming. There are times when I'm like, the hardest thing about when you're filming and crying is like, my head is already down. So like all the tears are going in the viewfinder and I'm like, I can't see. <laughs> and then, you know, we kind of had this running joke uh, with my producer and stuff because we would just cry so much and we would cry rewatching cuts and we would, See a, see a scene like you literally watched the film hundreds of times before you lock picture and we would still be crying and we would just laugh at each other for still crying. I'm like, are you still crying during that scene? <laughs> you know? But it's important to be moved when you're making something again, because I think for me, that's the thing that makes me confident that other people will be moved as well. If I watch something and I'm not emotional, I'm like, well, you know, I'm the only one that gets to see this. And so it's public. So I have to be emotionally moved. And there were so many times, I mean, countless times with Ms. Obama where, you know, she would just say things and it, listen, that's the strength that she has that I just look at her and I'm just like, you are, you are brave and courageous and unafraid. It's, it's like, I don't know. I, it, it's, it's just tremendous, you know? So when, when speaking with young women, Ms. Obama says she's never felt invisible because she refused to allow herself to. Um, do you struggle with that in your field? Oh, absolutely. So many industries are, you know, male-dominated, white male-dominated. Um, and as most people know, the business of filmmaking is, like, not the most diverse uh, community of people. It's not. It's not. Uh-huh. <laughs> and while I have had a tremendous amount of support in my life, and that is the reason why I am here from all types of folks, and I am very, very fortunate. People have worked so hard to lift me up to get me to where I am, but there's like thousands of other me's out there that need the same amount of encouragement, the same amount of support, the same amount of opportunities. How do we make sure that that level of mentorship and stuff like that is available for people? Because our field is, it's, it's, it's lacking in that way. Definitely. And, and I'm glad that you're speaking about that, uh, the field. And I wanted to get your thoughts on looking ahead. 
at the industry, right? Um, a 2019 report from the USC Anberg uh, Inclusion Initiative looked at the 1,200 top grossing films from 2007 to 2018 and found that only one director out of 1,335 individuals was a Latina. Wow, isn't that crazy? Wow, diverse. Aren't we so diverse? Look at that. <laughs> We're not. Um, were you familiar with that stuff? I had no idea about that very particular statistic at all. At all. It's not looking good statistic-wise for women, for people of color, even more so. I mean, you know, on every level, even as a cinematographer, you know, I think women make up like 2% of cinematographers working across the industry. That's crazy. And then opportunities that are, we know this has sort of been like the golden age with all these incredible platforms. More films are being made. This is supposed to be like the golden age of filmmaking and those opportunities yeah. aren't getting, that love is not necessarily always being spread to people. But again, I got to say, I know it's a Netflix podcast, but Netflix gave me my first huge opportunity with After Maria. They really invested in me and they believed in me. Uh, my executive producer, Roger Ross Williams, he brought the idea. I had been shooting his movie, the Apollo documentary. And I told him what I was working on. He was like, I want to take that to Netflix. And he was like, I want to be your EP and take that to Netflix. And I was like, okay, Netflix screen lit us like this. They believed in me and they trusted Roger to help manage the project. And they gave me my first big opportunity to work with more resources and also to learn how to work with Netflix because working with platforms and things like that, it's just a different, there's different deliverables and all these things that you have to do, tech specs, all these things I'm saying that may not mean a lot to people, but what that did was that prepared me so that when I got this huge opportunity making a Netflix film about Mrs. Obama, I felt prepared. I felt like I, I've done this before in some capacity. You know, and Netflix really looked out and, and they did that and they were incredibly supportive. So I, I appreciate that a lot. Shout out to Netflix. Okay. <laughs> okay. You know, I was, I was taking the time to calculate the percentage because some people don't understand one director out of 1,335. That's zero. If I'm doing it right, if my algebra kicks in, 0. 0.0007%. Oh that's a huge problem for me. And that's something that, that we'll be talking a, a lot. Yes. Uh, we'll be talking about a lot. Um, what has your experience been navigating the business as a Black and Latina woman? Do you feel part of the community of filmmakers of color? Hmm. I absolutely do. You know, I think I have a very unique experience, I think, working in, in documentary, working in the film, because my background as a cinematographer meant that I had worked closely collaborating with other filmmakers for a very long time before I started directing. And many of the filmmakers that first gave me my opportunity to shoot their movies were people of color. Other people of color hired me. Other women hired me. There were some men, a handful of white men that hired me. Shout out to all of those guys because I love them too. But it was not an overwhelming percentage. I think if it wasn't for people of color and women hiring me, I would not be where I am today. But so that being said, I do feel deeply a part of that community because that community sort of like they nurtured me and they helped me grow to get me to where I am. So I'm very fortunate in that sense. I mean, hello. We have to, it's the web that we create, right? That's the web that we have to continue to create. Um, what are some of the tips you might have for up and coming directors and cinematographers? 
some tips I would have is create as much as you can. It's all a practice and you get better the more you do it. And whether or not you think you're being recognized for your work immediately, it will pay off. Show up, make stuff, collaborate with your friends, do it in any way that you can. But there's value in all of it. And go to, we can't go to festivals right now, but when we can safely go to festivals, get out there, meet people. Relationships are paramount in this industry. If people know you and they they like you and they know that you're a hardworking, committed person, they will go an extra distance to help you. And I think that, you know, we all need that level of support because making films is incredibly hard. It's also really, really, really hard. So don't get disappointed if it's not easy because it's not easy actually for anyone. And there are going to be tremendous obstacles, but don't, don't give up because it's hard. Just know that if it's hard, it's because you're doing it right. You care enough that every detail matters and you're doing it right. I've been working in this business for 17 years and I just directed my first feature. So that is, it I'm has I'm so happy off, for you. You know, but I did everything from being a production assistant and like driving people to airports and getting coffee to there's steps. directing, you know, documentaries. There's levels to this, right? Very, there's definitely levels, yeah. What was one of the fear or hesitations you had to overcome that really allowed you to step into your creative power? I think I, to be honest, I always felt undereducated, even with a college degree. Me too. Oh my God. Come on, speak. I want to hear this. Yeah. I mean, it's real. And, you know, I think... It was incredibly intimidating for me coming into this space. And many of my colleagues went to Harvard, Yale, Brown, all the Ivy League universities. I went to public school in the South Bronx my whole life. And I went to Hunter College where I got a great education, but I had been undereducated for such a long time that I didn't have a lifetime of commitment and support in education. And so I was very afraid to speak because I felt inarticulate. And so I always became the most quiet person on set and people would ask me a question. I would just answer it. I wouldn't give my opinion. I wouldn't share my opinion. And I always told myself, one of my goals is to feel comfortable sharing my opinion, to be able to express my opinion. But at the same time, I do believe that there was a strength that I developed in this quiet presence. I think it, as you know, in many fields or arenas or rooms, the voices are so loud and there's so much competition to be the loudest voice. And I just told myself, I was like, I'm not going to ever be louder or more articulate than the people in this room. So I'm just going to be chill. And so many people have said to me, your quiet presence is the most powerful presence here. And to me, I was like, wow, like I never, that was never my strategy, but I always listened. I always paid attention. And that is really, I think now I could look back and say that that's something that really helped me. But yeah, I definitely always felt like I can't compete in these rooms. I felt this. Oh, my God. Sister, I could call you my sister. Jesus. I, I, that's something that I just resonate so much with. 
I wanted to ask you in keeping with the documentary's title, who are you looking forward to becoming um, in the future? That's a great question that I have not been asked. I think I am always striving to become a more considerate, thoughtful, loving, generous person and I, a person that is like deeply invested in community. And I just am always looking to strengthen those things. So I, I hope those are the things that, that I'm becoming. How about you? I'm going to ask you the same question. Who are you becoming? Oh, my God. Who am I becoming? Embracing myself more. Um, valuing myself more. Enough that I can to share my power with others and ignite inspiration with others. I just have to light everyone up. You know, you got to pass on the torch and, and that's what I'm about. Um, and speaking my mind and not feeling like, you know, not giving yourself enough credit. I'm telling you that, that documentary. And I was like, yo, how the hell I don't respect myself enough to understand that I, that is my power. I was able to hold three jobs and to put myself through school and to be, and, 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 the idea of like, oh, I'm a, I'm a teen mom and I'm like, oh, I'm not cool like everybody else. No, that is your power that you were able to do all that and and handle all that and still be who you are and still be strengthened. And so, I don't know, just doing accepting myself more and giving myself more credit, you know, yeah. just being kinder to myself and um, collaborating with people like you, educating myself about my iconic individuals in my community that I have to, you know. Uh, highlight and bring forth to to our youth uh, is very important to me. But enough about me. This is about you. I know, like I can't go uh, this whole time and not ask me one question. Ah! Pa que lo sepa. It's not easy being the first lady. Just ask Colombian-American filmmaker Patricia Cardoso. The award-winning writer, director, and producer is best known for her 2002 instant classic, Real Women Have Curves, starring a then-unknown America Ferrera. The film immediately captivated Latino audiences starved for media representation and offered mainstream viewers a window into authentic Latino storytelling. Critics have called it one of the most influential movies of the 2000s. In fact, it was just included in the National Film Registry at the Library of Congress this past January because of its cinematic contributions to the culture. That makes Cardoso the first Latina ever in the National Film Registry. She said of the historic announcement, For me, being one of the first Latina women directors is very important. But I wish I wasn't the first one. I wish there were many, many more before me and certainly hope there are many more coming behind me. The truth is, Cardoso has led the way on multiple occasions considering Latinas make up less than 1%. Yep, 1% of all directors. She was previously the first Latina to win the coveted audience award at the Sundance Film Festival for Real Women Have Curves and also the first to win a Student Academy Award for 1996's The Water Carrier. Additionally, she directed the first HBO movie ever released theatrically and holds the honor of directing Colombia's highest-grossing female-led picture. 
Patricia Cardoso, our community's first lady of film. Pa' que lo sepas. This podcast is a love letter to our communities, but we also like to ask all our guests some general questions about love and relationships. So we have a few questions for okay. you. You know, I always has to go down. You know. <laughs> I know. I'm, I'm media trained. I'll say the right thing. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and you know, we, how we get down, we always need a little tea. Um, so our documentary is Good Date Movie. Yes, absolutely. I agree. Um, what is a non-negotiable with a potential partner? Being organized. Yo, for real. For real. Come on. Okay. Any important love lessons you learned from watching the Obamas? No relationship is perfect. Yeah. Hello. Oh, my God. Come on. Can you see yourself with someone who doesn't appreciate films or filmmaking? Probably not. Okay. And now we're going to do another ga a little game that we call Canciones con Todo. So what are you listening to right now? I'm, <laughs> oh God, I'm like, I think I'm, okay, I've been in quarantine for like almost 60 days, people. I was listening to Babyface the other day. Okay, it's not wrong Babyface. <laughs> I was listening to SWB the other day. All oh, right, I yeah, so I'm like gonna... taking it back in the crates, right? <laughs> come, come on. Um, what song always makes you sad? Mary J. Blige, I'm going down. Oh. That's like that high school heartbreak music. Like now, that nothing yeah. else can know what song can be. With them twist, twist, twist earrings. I need to get myself another pair of those because I had those, honey. Mary J is, is, is the one. Um, what song makes you feel romantic? I am not the most romantic person, I'm going to be honest. So I, really? I have to pass on that question. You don't think I'm going, uh, Mary J is not romantic? Because that's the right. romance right there. <laughs> Just the, you know, it's a heartbreak romance like story, heartbreak, but it's, yeah. we all have a little romanticness in us. We just like cringy, you know, now we get a little cringy, we let it yeah. go, but we have a moment. <laughs> what is your go-to musica para limpiar, to clean? I'd say probably Drake. Wow. Okay. Drake be making people clean up. Okay. Um, <laughs> At song six in the morning, me. like a real Puerto Rican. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> song that reminds you of your parents my mom she loved uh patty labelle so patty labelle music is like my mom's music that reminds me of my mom all the time song that no matter when where you hear it you have to drop everything to sing along diana ross love hangover i love that song <laughs> and i love classic her. classic i love her um so you have a favorite movie soundtrack I do, and that's what got me to babyface, Boomerang. Dude, I'm giving away Bo my age right now. <laughs> Boomerang, baby, honey. Don't worry about that. We're ageless, honey. Yeah, I can't remember that. Um, there's a lot of Frank Ocean in the dock. Oh, my God. That's the song at the end. Oh, my God. Um, is that a fave artist of the Obamas? It is, yes. And me. So it was a great, it was a great match. It was meant to be. I love Frank Ocean, too. See, it's all three of us. I'm part of the Obamas now. Yay! What a great interview. Thank you what so much. What a great I've individual so to speak to. Oh you, my like, brightened my day, my quarantine day. Oh, my so. God. Wait, hold on, hold on, hold on. Am I safe to say, because I never belong to a sorority or anything like that. <laughs> so I'm like a Hunter College alumni, so you're like my yeah, alumni we're, we're sister. Sisters. Yes. 
I love that. Um, and I like to end each podcast with an affirmation to our community. Um, and I would love for you to go ahead and send our people your beautiful message and voice, what they need to hear in these times or whatever you feel like expressing to them. Sure. I want to tell our people that we we are strong people. We are loving people. We are people that are no strangers to struggle. We will get through this moment. We will get through everything that is put in front of us because there's nothing that we cannot do. Wow. You hear that? There's nothing that we cannot do. Amazing. Love you all. Thank you for tuning in. Nadia. Oh, my God. Thank I you. love I'm you. Thank you. I'm giving you a big hug. <laughs> We're doing a quarantine social distancing hug through Zoom, yeah. babies. All oh right. Have God. a great day. You too. Mi amor, te adoro. Thank right, you. Take care. Bye-bye. This show was produced by Netflix. Con todo and me, Dasha Polanco. If you like what you heard, be sure to rate and subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to follow at Con Todo Netflix on Instagram and Twitter for all things Latin excellence on Netflix. Also, follow me at She Is Dash. I've been your host, Dasha Polanco. Join me next week as I talk to the dynamic Dominican duo, Sasha Merci and Darlene de Morisi, about the new hustle. Hasta la próxima, mi gente. Mwah!